This is part two of chapter four, Marriage and the Newlywed Blues. When we were planning our wedding, financial blessings kept pouring in from loved ones and our family. Even my small business became especially lucrative during that time. That was God's favor. On our wedding day, all debts were paid in full and we had a surplus of money to begin our life together. Our honeymoon was a gift from one of my new brothers. And even our first six months of marriage went without a financial hitch. The lines were falling on us in pleasant places. By the time our baby was born, we had received so many gifts, both material and monetary, that I did not have to buy anything for him. God's provision was meeting us even before a need arose. The overflow we experienced should have bolstered my trust in God's perfect provision. But unfortunately, I am rather thick-headed. When my husband changed employment, quit a job, or went back to school, I would panic at the temporary loss of stability. Being so intricately tied to another adult that his financial decisions directly affected mine was terrifying. I understood why some women insisted on having their own money while married. Some even going as far as to have a secret stash of funds that their husbands cannot access or even know about. I understand it because it is based in the same fear and mistrust that I previously demonstrated. For women who have endured financial abuse or have witnessed the abuse of others firsthand, the only defense mechanism we employ in our own marriage is making sure that we have enough so that a man even the one we are called to love, honor, and submit to cannot take it away. I was not living with any type of abuse. My husband worked hard to provide for us and has never deprived me or our household of his money or his help. Yet, I was acting as if he could not be trusted to do the very thing God had called him to do in our family. When his financial habits showed themselves drastically different from my own, I would assume that his way was wrong. The only way to handle money was the way that I did it. My arrogance in deciding that my way was always better is shocking. But unfortunately, it would be a running theme in our marriage. Each time, I griped and I complained that my husband did not do things the way I would have done them. The Lord would tell me to be quiet. Constantly undermining my husband's sincere efforts to take up his role as the leader by complaining and taking jazz at his efforts were sucking joy out of my own marriage. A wise woman builds her house. Only a foolish one tears it down with her own hands. The Holy Spirit would confront my fear-based nagging with this question. Do you want to be married or do you want to be right? Yet, even when I was faithless, God was faithful. Marriage became my place of sanctification. Everything that the Lord wants me to learn or become is to be lived out in my relationship with my husband before it can be a blessing to anyone else. As a newlywed, I was floating in the clouds. I had done it. I had married the man of my dreams and honored our vow of abstinence until our wedding night. Every Christian book, woman speaker, and purity pastor had promised me 
that if I would just trust and obey God with my sex life, our marriage was sure to be blessed. I was ready to have an issue-free, argument-free time of marital bliss with the man that I love. Imagine my shock when I found myself happily married, but still not completely fulfilled, emotionally or spiritually. Case in point, my first birthday as a married woman. My 30th birthday was just months after our wedding. I was ready for all the Instagram-worthy surprises. Everything in my experience as a married woman in the age of social media told me that my husband was supposed to sweep me off my feet, especially for such a special occasion as a milestone birthday. Birthdays have always been special to me, from a young age to adulthood. I celebrated every milestone year with a bang, and even the non-milestones were properly recognized with dinner with friends and one or two special gifts from my parents and loved ones. I fully expected my husband to pick up where I had left off. When I opened my eyes on my birthday and did not see any signs of decorations or gifts, I did not panic. Clearly, my man was trying to surprise me. We said our good mornings, kissed hello, and went about preparing for the day. My heart was leaping in anticipation. If he was making me wait this long, my surprise must have been good. When we left for church, I was still looking around the car for my big surprise. Maybe my surprise was at church? During the service, the church prayed for me and other birthday celebrants, but there was no other fanfare. I was still looking for my big surprise. Nothing. To say that my expectations were high would be a gross understatement. They were not only high, they were also primarily fueled by hours of consuming other people's highlight reels. Husbands were supposed to go all out to celebrate their wives' big day. Hashtag goals, right? I deserved to be pampered, and it was my husband's job to ensure that my expectations were not disappointed. After church, our friends and family asked what we were doing in celebration of my day, and it finally dawned on me that my husband had forgotten my birthday. The only gift I received that day was a birthday card from his mom. I was distraught at my husband's lack of care. As we were driving back home, he asked if I wanted to stop at a restaurant for my birthday. I was indifferent. We ate at a nondescript chain restaurant, and I had an intense stomach ache and could not finish my meal. I did not know it at that time, but I was already pregnant. All in all, my birthday was a bust. As we drove home, I sat in stunned silence. For my 27th birthday three years before, I had made reservations at the most expensive five-star restaurant I could find and sent out invitations for my exclusive birthday dinner, asking guests to dress to the nines. We ate, talked, and took more pictures than our phone's memories could handle. It was a magical night of feeling loved and celebrated. To go from that as a single woman to now be married to a man who barely remembered the day I was born was horrifying. For my husband's 30th birthday the year before, when he was still my fiance, I had organized a surprise party for him at his apartment and invited our closest friends and family. I cooked and showered him with dozens of gifts. Birthdays are a big deal to me, and I did everything in my power to make his 30th a special one. This was not at all my expectation for my first birthday as a married woman. Once again, I refer to the images in my head of otherwise being pampered by their husbands, and I felt cheated. 
either I did not deserve that kind of over-the-top celebration or I married the wrong kind of man and would never get them. When I was single, I often took extended breaks from social media to recenter myself on the life I had. But the closer I got to our wedding, the more time I was spending online, especially on Instagram. Before long, I was severely addicted to scrolling. My favorite pastime was feasting my eyes on the perfectly polished pages of other married Christian women in ministry. Their lives looked so glamorous. They were jet-setting, fashionable, and rich. Their lives painted a picture I had exalted in my heart. This was what it meant to be a successful Christian woman. I was determined to pattern my life after theirs so I could have the same joy and followers that they enjoyed. When my birthday did not turn into the photoshoot-worthy celebration I had been expecting, my disappointment was palpable, and it extended beyond that one birthday. I imagined a lifetime lacking in romance and celebration, one where I would be going out of my way to celebrate my spouse, only for my own special days to go without acknowledgement. When I was by myself and would wallow in myself pity uninterrupted, I acknowledged my disappointment and finally realized how unattainable my expectation had been. I had set my husband up for failure. Nothing outside of the picture in my head would have been an adequate birthday celebration. I am married to a man whose family did not celebrate birthdays at all for the first 10 years of his life due to their religious practices. Even as adults, birthdays were never acknowledged with more than a happy birthday. Gifts exchanges were rare. Knowing all of this about my husband and expecting him to flip a switch and become a different man altogether because we were now married was beyond unfair on my part. It would be like if my husband decided after our wedding that he was only attracted to Spanish-speaking women and I needed to master the language in one day. It was a selfish and self-centered expectation. After wiping my face and acknowledging my own part in my disappointment, I made up my mind to celebrate the heck out of my husband, genuinely and without expectation. Whether it was birthdays, anniversaries, or any of his accomplishments, I would throw a parade of affirmation, acknowledgement, and love for him at every opportunity. Pastor Chip Ingram says that love is giving someone what he or she needs the most when you think they deserve it the least. So even my husband never became an expert at throwing birthday parties. I would celebrate enough for the both of us. The amazing thing about this was that the more I celebrated my husband in this way, the more joy and fulfillment filled my own heart. I was not bitter that I gave him something he did not give me. No. Instead, celebrating me caused me to remember all his wonderful qualities and made me especially grateful to be his wife. A happy consequence of my own decision to honor my husband is that he has grown in his outward expression of love during my birthday and our anniversaries. He buys meaningful gifts, writes me beautiful cards, and always attempts to give me a special outing. Knowing how far he has come makes me even more grateful for these steps in the right direction. I have learned to be as content with a genuine happy birthday and a smile from the man I love as I am for a beautiful floral arrangement and a night on the town.
I began to take charge of birthdays by planning the celebrations I wanted to see. For his birthdays, I planned surprise dinners, indoor picnics, surprise gift baskets, and birthday parties in our home. For my birthdays, I bought tickets to comedy shows, planned elegant dinners, booked professional makeup artists and hairstylists, found a beautiful dress to wear, and celebrated the life that God had given us. When I started taking ownership of creating my own joy and stopped looking for my husband to create it for me, we enjoyed our friendship in marriage much more. I stopped making my husband responsible for every ounce of happiness that I would experience. Right before our wedding, my husband and I walked a valley that scared me, a spiritual and emotional crisis that rocked us both. Had I not been secure in our relationship and the Lord's leading, it could have scared me away. We had both been in previous relationships that could have led to marriage with our mutual exes. I started wondering what manner of past experiences my future husband held and what impact it would have on our lives together and our future marriage. I knew my own baggage very well, but I also knew how far I had come in my journey to wholeness. I only knew what my husband told me and what the Holy Spirit revealed. What if there was some unknown darkness keeping him from fulfilling all that God intended for him to be? How would I really know if God did not show me? When I went to the Lord with my fears about my husband, was he spiritual enough? Did he have what I needed in a covering? Would he be able to give me the kind of love and assurance I needed in marriage? The Holy Spirit comforted me with a piece of wisdom that has saved us until even today. Treat him like he is the man of your dreams, and I, the Lord, will make him the man you dream of. Those few words lit a fire under my feet and placed an unshakable hope in my belly. Even when my husband does what I would not expect or prefer, I affirm him like nobody's business. I make sure that he knows that his wife is proud of him and in his corner unconditionally. My favorite words to him are, I love how you lead our family and how you always put us first. And ironically enough, I say those words most when my fears try to tell me that he is not considering me in his decision making. These words are my declaration of faith because 99.9% of the time, my fears are lying to me. They cannot be trusted. I force my mind to recenter itself, not on my fears of being unloved or disregarded, but on the love and admiration I had in my heart when I said, yes, I will marry you. I refresh my recollection regarding all the reasons why marrying this man was a no-brainer. He is kind. He is selfless. He loves his family with no hesitation. He is the definition of a servant leader. He is funny. He's an amazing father. He's a peacekeeper. And on and on like that until the lies are drowned out by the truth. But even in all my spiritual understanding, I would be lying if I said I did not experience times of gut-wrenching disappointment. There are some things I just never prepared to encounter as a married woman. 
marriage was the promised land, or so I was told. Every older married woman in my life was constantly pushing me towards marriage as a single woman because it was supposed to afford me something that singleness never did. Joy, personal fulfillment, and a sense of being, quote, complete. Even when nobody spelled it out, the undertones were clear. I was not complete until I was married, with children. So, I had big expectations for my marriage to give me everything I needed and more. It was supposed to fulfill all my desires for companionship and my longing to be fully known and fully loved. It did not take long into marriage for me to realize that marriage is a very poor replacement for Jesus. I needed my savior more than ever as a married woman. Trying to find every ounce of my joy in my husband was a weight of expectation that would have crushed him. The church's distorted view of marriage has done a grave disservice to us as believers, women especially. Even when I had other serious need for community and healing as a single woman, everyone was most interested in seeing me successfully married off. The pressure to get married by a certain age is so constant that I have loved ones who rushed into marriage in their first adult relationship only to discover that marriage did not meet the promise they had expected. As we speak, there are friends who married alongside my husband and I, and within months or one year of our wedding, who are now divorced. And while my church was ill-equipped to handle adult singles who were not necessarily thinking about marriage just because they were 30 years or older, it was wholly unable to cater to the needs of the young and divorced. Many who had been pressured into marriage only to find themselves divorced have had to find their healing elsewhere, away from the very people who told them that marriage will solve their problems. When we expect marriage to another human being to do what only salvation through Jesus Christ can accomplish, we set ourselves and our spouses up for failure. And unfortunately for me, I was towing that line. But for the Lord's intervention, my marriage would have collapsed under the weight of my idolatry of it. One of the hardest areas for me to navigate as a new wife was the issues of finances or merging our money. My husband and I opened our first account together while we were engaged in wedding planning. That decision gave me a small window into our financial future and the picture was troubling. I was a saver planning to marry a spender. I did not realize that I had been previously traumatized by lack. I thought I was just frugal. Financial abuse is such a common occurrence in my community that many of us fail to recognize it as abuse at all. Close friends, older women, and church members were among the population of women I knew personally whose husbands either hoarded their own money and let the family languish or refused to work although able and allowed their wives to carry the back-breaking load of supporting a family with multiple children. I did not want to end up abused in that manner. In certain ways, my fear of being financially abused caused me to overcorrect in my path. I was subconsciously afraid to work full-time. I heard stories of husbands 
haphazardly quitting their jobs when they discovered their wife's lucrative wages. I feared that my husband would deem my income alone as enough and refuse to contribute to our household needs any further. On the other hand, the thought of not having enough petrified me, and whenever our financial security was threatened, I would feel unsafe in my marriage. So, when my husband would make a major life decision without talking to me, quitting a job for an example, my heart would drop. I would retreat into myself and wallow in the disappointment of having a husband who did not treat me like his partner. If my husband made a decision like a bachelor instead of a man with a wife and family, the heaviness of disappointment would drag me down. If he took a financial risk without my knowledge, but it ended up affecting our family's finances, my heart towards him would shrink just a little. When I look back at all the different times when it felt like my husband was not measuring up to my expectations, the overwhelming emotion was grief. There was a sense of loss in those moments. It finally occurred to me that I had been mourning the death of the man that I thought I married, the one who was as close to perfection as anyone could be. It is perfectly acceptable for me to mourn that loss. It is disappointing to have your spouse prove themselves to be something other than what and who you thought you married. You're not the man or woman I thought you were. Or, you're not the person I married. Maybe one of the most devastating statements to utter or to hear. It can be hard to adjust my expectation of my spouse, especially if I have idolized marriage in my heart, or I have designed the marriage of my dreams long before I factored in my husband's specific strengths, weaknesses, and God-given destiny. It can be especially hard if we married at one point in our lives, and now my husband has transformed right before my eyes into someone that no longer fits my idea of who he who he should be as a husband or as a man. In this place, it is easy to conclude that we have just grown apart and there is no longer any common ground between us as a couple. We're just heading in two different directions. The future seems inevitable. When I give up on understanding or working with my husband as he is, while simultaneously investing in who he can be, I give myself room for despair. If I am no longer trying to understand my husband, I have resigned myself to the notion that we are just too different. If I have given up on accepting my husband as he is, I have, complete, I have concluded that he is beyond redemption. He's just too flawed and we are just too different. There is no room for growth. Hope dies a swift death in that type of darkness. I am better off by myself than living like this. I'd rather be alone. Separation becomes a welcome relief to the alternative of living with a partner who refuses to change to meet your needs. Divorce becomes an option. If I mourn my idea of who my husband is supposed to be so much so that I am unwilling to accept him for who he is, there can come a point where I have nothing in common with the man who stands before me. I don't love you anymore might actually mean I love my idea of you more than I love you as a person. So it is okay to mourn the death of my idea of who my husband should be. However, it is not okay 
to act as if my unmet expectations are grounds for divorce. If I get stuck in that place of grief, why can't he do this? Why won't he do that? I will be counting offenses even though my love for him is commanded to keep no record of his wrongdoing. Husbands and wives make terrible idols and even worse gods. They are not all-knowing, no matter how much we wish they would read our minds without us having to expend any effort in communication. Their resources are limited. Even a rich husband cannot afford the idolatry of his wife. They get physically and emotionally spent. They have bad days. And generally, they are just not as long-suffering as the all-seeing, all-knowing creator of heaven and earth. There is a limit to their abilities. No matter how happy my marriage is, it, it will never answer every void in my life. Only Christ can do that. And I thank God for the mercy of God that keeps me running to the foot of the cross over and over again. Because if I did not experience the challenges we have faced thus far, even as newlyweds, I would definitely be attempting to do marriage in my own strength. Having my own wisdom, tactics, and maneuvers fail me is exactly the prodding I need to keep submitting my marriage to God so that he can teach me his original design for this institution. One of my worst habits in my marriage was comparing my portion to another person's. I have amazing friends whose husbands seem to thrive in the ministry of marriage more than the average man. These men take care of their children by themselves, send their wives on kid-free vacations, plan weekly date nights, and lead their families' spiritual lives with little or no difficulties. Oh, and they make six figures or more. These husbands seem to have it all. And by having it all, they seem to be giving their wives the most problem-free life that one could ever dream of. Early in my marriage, I would sit and imbibe the beautiful polished pictures, the breathtaking views, and the drool-worthy gift exchanges between these perfect couples. I fully expected my marriage to one day look like these ones, even if we did not start like this. The glitzy glamour, perfect picture, was something to aspire towards. The difficulty with my desire was that anytime we had an issue within our marriage, my first thought was, I bet John and Jane do not have these kinds of problems. Their marriage is perfect. That thought would drive me deeper into misery because it confirmed my fear that I either married the wrong kind of man in order to be that kind of happy or I was the wrong type of woman and was undeserving of such joy. Often, I am comparing my newly wedded husband with men who have been growing in the ministry of marriage for five or 10 years longer than us. I am holding up our beginning to their carefully cultivated highlight reel and mourning the differences. I am looking at him in his unrefined state and measuring him against another marriage's finished process after a refining fire. Sometimes 
I am even denying him the benefit of my help by covering his weaknesses instead of exposing or murmuring about them and wondering why he does not look like the husbands whose wives have learned to hone their ministry of helping and wield it effectively in their home. I want him to measure up to the quote best husbands while giving him none of the advantages. Comparison never considers the fact that I am graced for my husband, the one I have today, and the man he will be tomorrow by God's grace. I used to jokingly tell my friends that no one could be my husband's wife but me, because any other woman would have either left him or strangled him by now. Some of the habits that used to completely infuriate me about my husband now barely raise an eyebrow. I have grown. And by God's grace, I am calibrated perfectly to meet him where he is today. God continues to adjust us to fit each other. There is no use kicking against the gourds and wishing my husband was someone other than who God created him to be. Comparing him, out loud or in my heart, does too much to chip away at my husband's sense of confidence and his identity in Christ. I refuse to partner with any habit that brings him harm rather than good. There is no better husband for me than the one I have. If he is lacking something I need, by God's grace, I choose to believe that he will grow into that character or ability. Soulmates are not born. They are made. They are made by investing effective communication, time, energy, affirmation, unwavering prayer and steadfast commitment into the life of your partner. My husband's growth over the last six years of our marriage has been amazing to witness and to think I had any part to play in any of it brings my heart the best kind of joy. One of the best things my husband has ever said to me is that I make him feel like a bigger better version of himself. My heart soared at that encouragement. It's because I am looking at him through eyes of faith. I cannot afford to only see or remember the man he was. I am purposefully looking at and and affirming who God has called him to be. The man who did not pray audibly nine years ago now leads other men in prayer at church. The man who did not know which bills were due when now manages accounts for several thousand dollars without issue. The man who spent without care last decade now pays off debt, car loans, credit cards, mortgages, way ahead of schedule. The man who did not remember birthday six years ago now leaves surprise flowers and cards and gifts on the doorsteps for me to find. Imagine if I had wallowed in the misery of our growing pains, lamenting the fact that my husband of one year did not look like other husbands who have been refined in the place of marriage for decades. I would have missed out on so much joy and growth in our life together. Even if you are the best spouse in the world, but you have a partner that is unwilling to work with you, your efforts will be frustrated. If my husband is being the best husband he currently knows how to be, but I am frustrating his efforts by bashing him for all the things he does not yet know, I am literally frustrating the grace of God over my marriage. When you have a husband or wife 
that is willing to stand with you through thick and thin, willing to adjust and make your life together work. You are ahead of the game. You are poised to have the marriage of your dreams. It takes effort. It takes work. And it takes more forgiving than you thought possible of anyone except Christ. Seven times, 70 times is real math. But there is grace for marriage. Marriage is God-ordained like no other relationship before or after it. The grace that can sustain a marriage is not available for a friendship, roommates, boyfriend and girlfriend, or any other pseudo-marriage arrangement that the world comes up with. Marriage built on the foundation of Christ seems to enjoy a grace like no other. The trials and temptations that crumble others will often strengthen a union that is built on Jesus, our solid rock. There is, this is not a prescription to dictate that Christians must suffer to be married. I truly believe that God called us to enjoy our marriages rather than just enduring them. But in the time of testing and walking through various trials, believers are better poised than most others to prosper in difficult circumstances. God is a champion of marriage, and I strongly believe that he graces us to do marriages well. The circumstances that can kill a friendship will not necessarily end a marriage because we are graced for this union. The hurt that can end an engagement can be the turning point for good for a marriage that was once dead in the water because again, we are graced for marriage. Roommates do not carry the same grace as husband and wife. There is nothing else quite like marriage. Marriage is so honorable to God that he chose the union between husband and wife to mirror the union between Christ and his church. We are designed to follow a heavenly pattern. And the more sincerely we seek to live out that pattern here on earth, the more the grace of God abounds towards us. Even if your circumstances in marriage are difficult, remember that where sin abounds, either in me due to my own brokenness or in my husband due to his own frailty, grace abounds much more. The grace of God has already factored in what it would take for my marriage to prosper. My job is to agree with God. That does not mean that every Christian marriage survives or even thrives, unfortunately. But it means that if you are committed to Christ and committed to making your marriage last, and you have determined to work with your spouse, regardless of their own weaknesses or yours, the grace of God abounds towards you. You can not only survive the hardships, you can thrive amid them. Do not waste the grace of God over your marriage by spending your time resenting the hand you were dealt. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good of the land. This has been part two of chapter four, Marriage and the Newlywed Blues. We pick up next time with part three of chapter four. Thank you for listening and take care.